According to the American Cancer Society, ovarian cancer ranks fifth in cancer deaths among women, accounting for more deaths than any other cancer of the female reproductive system. While it's rare, this type of cancer can go undetected until it's too late. In this edition of Health Styles, we'll learn more about the factors that can increase the risk of developing this type of cancer. We'll also discuss the role of genetic testing and how it may help women understand their future risk. That's all coming up next. We'll be right back after this short break. Someday, you may need Sarah Bush Lincoln for advanced technology. Someday, you may need our skilled hands and bright minds. While you shouldn't worry about things that could happen someday, we do. And we are ready today. Because the less you have to worry about life's challenges, the more you can focus on life's rewards. Sarah Bush Lincoln, trusted, compassionate care. Visit www.sarahbush.org. I'm here with Leslie Taggart, Advanced Practice Nurse with Sarah Bush Lincoln's Women's Health. And Leslie, thanks for taking time out to visit with me today. Thank you for having me. So September is Ovarian Cancer Month, and we wanted to just get, you know, some questions and answers about ovarian cancer. And you said, hey, I would love to do that because you do have a connection, which we will get to a little bit later. Let's first start by asking the question, what age group or ethnicity is at higher risk for getting ovarian cancer? Um, so we know that late women over um, usually age 55 to 60, typically when they're postmenopausal, those eight, that group of women, they're at a higher risk for developing ovarian cancer. As far as ethnicity goes, definitely Caucasian fem females. We know that they are significantly more elevated and that can be as high as 28% uh, higher than um, women who are African American or Asian Pacific Islander or uh, American Indian. Um, so significantly higher rates in Caucasian females. Of the gynecological cancers, how common is where does this one rank? It's one of the more rare ones that we see. It's not something that we definitely see um, often or even commonplace, mm -hmm. but it also is something that once we do see it, it's oftentimes advanced because uh, patients will tend to kind of ignore their symptoms or they think it's uh, something else. It can present um, a little bit more differently than some of the more well-known cancers. Okay. Let's talk about the role of childbirth. Like, do women who've had children not have children, greater risk, less risk? What role does that play? Um, the more children a woman has had, the lower her risk of ovarian cancer can be. Um, we're not sure really what the magic number is, but we do know if you have had a full-term pregnancy and the more of them you've had, the lower your risk is. And do we know why that is? We're not really sure. We think it has something to do with ovarian function and the effect of, of pregnancy on the ovaries, but definitely research has proved that several times. So what about the role of, you know, we, we hear about the role of taking hormone replacement therapy for women who've had breast cancer. Does HRT play a role in your in your risk of getting ovarian cancer? Yes, it, it can, but um, it's harder to study because 
ovarian cancer is a less common cancer. So we don't have quite as much research as, uh, let's say, lung or breast cancer, mm -hmm. cancers that are more common and more studied. Um, but in a combination of about 50 studies um, with randomized control studies and observational studies, they found that women who took um, certain um, estrogen and progesterone um, um, HRT after menopause did have an increased risk of getting cancer. And the risk was highest for women taking those hormones um, and it decreased over time after the hormones were stopped. So, you know, after the woman stopped taking um, her HRT or hormone replacement, her risk did gradually go down over time. Okay. What about um, family history and genetics? And this is where I know you have some, some background in and some personal interest in. Yes, so um, there is definitely a genetic correlation. We know that um, a family history of other types of cancers like colorectal or breast cancer are oftentimes linked to increased risk of ovarian cancer. Um, it's oftentimes because of an inherited mutation that happens with certain uh, genes, part of our DNA. Um, and something that people aren't well aware of is that at our office specifically, we offer what's called a comprehensive cancer panel. Um, it's a lab test, it's a serum blood draw that we can do that gives us a whole list of um, rundown of your genetic mapping essentially to tell us if you are a carrier for certain kinds of genes. And um, the list that we have is quite extensive and it's not just breast or ovarian. A lot of people think of uh, just BRAC testing, they're real familiar with BRAC1 and 2 mm -hmm. uh, for breast cancer, but that's something we have definitely um, learned more about and we've divulged on significantly. We've we've discovered so many more genes. Um, so in myself, um, particularly, I have, I'm a carrier for a gene called PALB2 or PALB2, which puts me at increased risk for breast, ovarian, and colorectal cancer. So um, I found out about this gene about three years ago and I have to have like um, earlier um, uh, mammograms. I have pelvic ultrasounds. I have um, MRI of my chest once a year, uh, but also it's just one of those things where I'll have to have earlier uh, colorectal screening with colonoscopy mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Is that, how do you, knowing that information, how does that affect you? Is it something you think about regularly or? Definitely probably as I get older, I think about uh -huh. it more. Um, my mom and her two sisters were all breast cancer survivors. They were all diagnosed um, under age 45 in a very short amount of time. So it's definitely, breast cancer has been very, uh, prevalent in my family from a very early age. I've had a long time to think about that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that I've just decided personally that I wanted to know what my risk was and that's why I had that lab test drawn. Um, and when I had this drawn three years ago, it was a gene that was in a class of, um, it was called um, a newer uh, risk gene. We didn't really know much about it, but we know mm -hmm. that there was some connection. And since then, they have found out even more information. And now I'm in the high risk group. So it does change. It's very fluid as far as what we learn with with uh, research. So I just decided to be really proactive as far as with imaging. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of my um, patients who are in the same situation as me have seen genetic counselors um, where they've had prophylactic um, removal of their ovaries and breast tissue. I'm not quite there yet personally, mm -hmm. 
but it's definitely something that I reevaluate every year when I have my annual screening. So on that list, is there one gene specifically for ovarian cancer or is it lumped in with the it other It can ones? be lumped, okay. yeah. There's not just one because that's the, that's the good and the bad of these is that test will tell us if, the, if you are a carrier for the genes, but almost all the genes on that list are very few to have just one type of cancer mm-hmm. that they cause. So that goes back to that familial, um, you're the genetic carrier of some mutation. So it's not just that you were exposed by something environmentally, which was, can absolutely mm-hmm. increase your risk with more of like the HRT factor, but the bigger part of it would be what's in your genes, how, how you were made, what your DNA says, what your increased risk is for. Let's talk about things that can increase our risk for getting ovarian cancer. So there, there are several. Um, one of them would be, like we talked about, getting older. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely not a cancer. We typically see under 40, not impossible, but most likely to be 55 and over. Um, if being overweight or obese increases your risk. Um, having children later in life, or like I said, never having a full-term pregnancy. Uh, again, taking hormone therapy after menopause, or the family history of ovarian breast or colorectal cancer. Those are the biggest um, factors that can increase your risk. And you mentioned earlier that having children decreases your risk. What about the role of if you took a birth control? Yes, and that's something I always get lots of questions. Patients are scared to death to take birth control for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. They're worried about their fertility. But one one huge perk of taking an oral contraceptive, um, it definitely increases, or I'm sorry, decreases your risk of ovarian cancer. Um, and we have found that women who took oral contraceptives for three years or more are 30 to 50% less likely to develop ovarian cancer. And I, I don't know, I had heard this, I think it was from our oncologist, Dr. Shakir, that it all has to do with something every time your body goes through that cycle, Absolutely. it changes something in your body. And the less times your body can do that over the course of your lifetime is a good thing. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Which it does make sense because when you're pregnant, you're not ovulating. When absolutely. you're on the pill, you're not ovulating. Absolutely. Yep. That suppression of ovulation, they think, is a, a key factor in why that decreases our mm-hmm. our uh, rates of the cancer. You talked about the symptoms are kind of subtle, not real obvious. What If there are symptoms, what are they? Um, so that's probably the biggest question. Um, patients come in and they assume at their annual exam they're going to have a pap smear every year. They think having that pap smear is just the best indicator for their cancer risk screening. Mm-hmm. And it really, it's a wonderful test, but it's actually very limited. It only screens for cervical cancer, mm-hmm. which is not familial. That's only passed through human papillomavirus, which is sexually transmitted. So it is a, a great test, but it is very limited. So screening for ovarian cancer can be a little bit trickier. And that's why we tend to find it a little bit later because patients confuse symptoms okay. with other issues. So what we look for are uh, vaginal bleeding, particularly if you've been menopausal for a while and you start having menstrual type bleeding again mm-hmm. um, or discharge that's not normal for you. If, if it just is, it seems different or unique, especially later in life, that's definitely a red flag. Um, pain or pressure in the pelvic area, um, abdominal or back pain, bloating, a feeling of fullness or heavy, heaviness in the pelvis, uh, difficulty eating or feeling full sooner than you normally would, um, or a change in your bathroom habits, such as um, urinating more often or issues with constipation. So there really is no, so the PAP test is for cervical cancer. There really is no test for 
Right, exactly, exactly. We can do things, um, like for myself, where I'm at an elevated risk, I have a um, pelvic ultrasound um, once a year that looks at my ovaries real closely. But again, having my annual exam with my provider when she can do a pelvic exam and she can palpate my ovaries, assessing for pain, um, increased size, anything in my pelvis that doesn't seem normal, mm -hmm. that's just as important as having imaging done. Because clinical assessment is, is huge, absolutely. If a woman has got some concerns, what, how, what kind of questions should she be asking her provider? I just encourage my patients, if they notice changes in their body that aren't normal for them, they, especially if it's kind of like what we just talked about with some of those, those symptoms, talk to your provider. We would much rather hear from you than you spend time worrying or talking to a girlfriend or searching Google. If there's anything that seems out of the ordinary, just ask because there's lots of things, especially with women's health that are, were considered taboo, especially mm -hmm. with patients kind of my age and older. Our parents didn't talk about that with us. Their parents didn't talk about it. So it's not something that just comes across with normal conversation. And it's not as prevalent as, um, as prevalent as breast cancer, so we don't talk about it as often mm -hmm. either. So just having those open and honest conversations with your provider, that's probably the biggest thing. Well, and if you come from family or friends that don't talk about those things, you may think what's happening to you is normal Absolutely. and it and it's not. And that's what we see lots of times in older women is they just, they don't know. It's, it's for lack of better terms, ignorance in a good way mm -hmm. that they just don't know. They've never been exposed to that and they don't talk about with their girlfriends or, you know, they're just not familiar with it. So just being open and honest and asking your provider, what signs and symptoms do I need to look for? How often do you want to see me? I have a ton of patients that think after they have a hysterectomy that they don't need to come for a well woman exam, even if they're 45 and they had that. You still have 20 more years that we want to see you in the office once a year. Mm -hmm. So having those annual exams once a year when you're 65 and under are really important. So while we have you here, as we talk about annual exams and, and screening things, Talk about when you need a mammogram, a pap test, blood tests, those sorts of things. Just give us the lowdown. So as far as a mammogram goes, there's kind of two different um, bodies of recommendations. Um, some recommend at 50, you have that once a year or even once every two years. Some would say at 40, you need to do that once a year or once every two years. Um, I recommend once a year starting at 40, uh, just because I find a lot of patients have come to me and they're already 45 and they've been putting off for, for, for a few years and they've never done that. They have a family history that they just didn't really know they had, um, or that year very quickly turns into, oh, I'm six months over, now I'm 12 months over, and that just gets really stretched out. Mm -hmm. So um, as far as the pap test goes, we want to see you in the office once a year, but most of the time, if, you're, if your pap smears are normal, you only need to have them every three years now. A lot of patients come to me from maybe a family practice office or um, from a a provider that has retired and they might have been following older guidelines, but mm -hmm. the guidelines we've had for the last 10 to 15 years are much more in the patient's favor as far as the frequency is how often you have to have them, but you still need clinical assessment once a year. Um, and as far as labs go, once you turn 40, that's a great time to make sure you're established with a primary care provider. You need to have um, um, 
cardiac risk assessment done with probably a lipid panel, which is like your cholesterol, mm -hmm. good and bad, and your lipid total and uh, your HDL, that kind of stuff. Um, your kidney and liver function probably needs to be assessed. A lot of patients start to be on chronic medications at that time. So just because you're feeling good and not having an issue, I still recommend those annual screenings. And for a lot of my patients, we are there lack of a better term, their annual screening, and that's okay. It, you probably need to have a primary care person also for those non-women's health related issues, but someone needs to be doing a complete physical on you once a year. So really for women, you're never done. I no. think a lot of women would yes. say they're having kids that, yes. you know, they're seeing the doctor yes. and then they kind of forget that, Absolutely. oh, I, I need to go Yes, myself. even though you're out of your childbearing age, it's still important that you're, you're assessing risk because there's a different chapter in life and there's different risks that come with that. Yeah. All right, Leslie, this was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And we encourage you, if you ever have questions or something's not right, be sure to talk to your healthcare provider. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Health Styles presented by Sarah Bush Lincoln. I'm your host, Lori Banks. Leslie Taggart is part of the team at Women's Health Practice that includes Drs. Fleming, Galvin, Meyer, and Miller, and advanced practice nurse Nicole Wachner. The clinic provides comprehensive obstetrics and gynecological services. They are located on the second floor of the Sarah Bush Lincoln Health Center. For more information, visit sarahbush.org. Be sure to get notified of new podcasts by subscribing to our show on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, you can always listen to our shows directly on our website at sarahbush.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.